there was this focus that the language was on was was past tense you know this dark history but but the reality is that the history and the system and the act has has led to and created injustice greetings everyone and welcome to unleashed the fastest hour on the internet where every episode we're joined by an interesting thought leader all in the name of helping you unleash your leadership potential with their insights, tools, and habits. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe there's a hard path and an easier path to building your business. We partner with your leadership team to show you how to dramatically improve your results by perfecting the art of execution to get more of what you want from your business. Today's conversation is one you won't want to miss. In a very special episode of Unleashed, we're joined by Indigenous Relations Advisor, Annie Corver. In this episode, she shares very deep personal stories along with steps that we can all take in the path towards reconciliation. Please enjoy. I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University and they partner with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their online offerings include leadership, digital transformation, project management, artificial intelligence and ethics, digital wellness, and embracing allyship and inclusion. Their core belief is that learning should be fun, engaging, and easily accessible. Their online platform means your employees can literally learn from wherever they are located. PowerEd meets them in their space and at a time that works best for them. Check out PowerEd at powered.ca. Today's episode sponsor is SharePoint Group. Established in 2003, SharePoint Group is a premier industrial contractor providing electrical and instrumentation, compression and controls, and equipment packaging and rental services to the upstream oil and gas industry. SharePoint is committed to building meaningful relationships with Indigenous peoples, communities, and businesses where they operate. They understand an inclusive approach to business supports economic reconciliation and contributes towards true prosperity for everyone. And don't forget to help us grow the community by sharing the episode links with people in your network that love learning as much as you do. Check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. Now on with the episode. I want to also respectfully acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples. While we spend our time today on a virtual platform, I would like our listeners to also take a moment to acknowledge the importance of the lands which we all call home. I also acknowledge the great respect we have for the histories, the languages, the cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant communities. Now, my very special guest today is Annie Corver. Annie is a purpose-driven entrepreneur dedicated to enriching relationships between Indigenous and corporate communities. Inspired by reconciliation in Canada and her own Métis ancestry, Annie founded Rise Consulting to respond to reconciliation and advance Indigenous inclusion with a focus on economic uh, development. Annie holds a Master's of Business Administration from the University of Calgary. She is a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta, a volunteer director on the board with the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business, a board member with the Canadian Business for Social Responsibility, the Weaving Roots Foundation, and is co-chair 
of the Young Women in Energy, Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation Committee. Annie also serves on the board of directors with the Shared Value Solutions. Annie lives within the homelands of the Tanaha peoples in Fernie, British Columbia with her husband and their two young children where they enjoy skiing, biking and hiking as often as possible. Annie, welcome to the program today. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. It's really great to be here. Yeah, you're very welcome. So the introduction may have been kind, but I can't help thinking, where do you find any spare time? <laughs> well, there's not a lot of it right now, but I try, to, I try to bring balance to my life. I really acknowledge that the mountains are my medicine. And with our recent move to the homelands of the Tanaha people, I've had more chance to spend time on the trails because they're right out my door now. We were in Treaty 7 territory in Calgary for just over a decade, and it was always a little bit of a commute. Um, I've got many friends listening today, and, and they know what the trails like are in Bread Creek. And although wonderful, it was still a 35-minute drive. And so that time, Jeff, I'm saving that time. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very envious. I hope, uh, I hope someday to live in the mountains in my backyard as well. And look, Annie, we can appreciate uh, the demands on your time, especially today on this, on this very special day. Um, I want to just thank you so much for making time here to help educate, help us learn, and hopefully take uh, some action in, in the direction of, of reconciliation. And, you know, I thought maybe, maybe where we would, could start is just a little bit of, of uh, how are you feeling today and, and what, does this, what does this day mean for you and your family? Yeah, it's a great place to start. And I feel really encouraged. I mean, I, I thank you, Jeff, for the land acknowledgement and starting off in a good way. We do this to reaffirm our commitment and responsibility in improving relationships. And that in itself is an act of reconciliation. The time you and I are spending, the time that others are spending with us right now as they listen and, and social media, I, I'm, I'm not a big user of social media, but I use LinkedIn and, and the messages, the stories, the resources that are available, even the change from when the team that I work with at Rise started to create resources for our clients to what's available now, sort of four weeks later since sort of, sort of sharing those resources. It's incredible. The momentum is it's happening. It's, you know, and, and RISE is, is purposeful in supporting the rising presence of Indigenous peoples. And I, I feel that. I, I see that right now. Yeah. And Annie, your reputation precedes itself. I know a number of people and a number of companies, uh, some of our clients included, that have worked with you and you have an incredible reputation. So you're doing phenomenal work. And, uh, and, it, and it did kind of make me wonder, how did you start doing reconciliation work in the first place? I'm thank you. I'm really humbled by that. Um, and I can get emotional about it because I just, you know, Jeff, I'm a vessel for the work. I, I was studying, I was in my graduate studies, um, at the, at the U of C, you mentioned that I did my MBA and that was a decade ago. It's like, don't tell anybody it's been a decade, but I was working at Calgary economic development at the time. And I was learning really for the first time about rights and title in the classroom as we were looking at energy development cases. And I knew that my own genealogy through my dad's mother, who was one of eight children growing up just north of the Red River settlement in Manitoba was Métis, but we didn't talk a lot about it. And so after some digging and multiple conversations with my father, his sister, various members of my family, aunties that I didn't know that I had, 
and then some work with a genealogist with the Métis Nation, I've been able to learn so much more about our roots in the settlement and what life would have been like in the community from the late 1700s through until the early 1900s. And so as I learn, the more I learn, the more I apply. And, and I think we'll talk more about this, this framework that I use, listen, learn, reflect, act later on this morning. But it's really in acknowledging the privilege, the privileges that I had to grow up in a middle class, in a middle class family in Revelstoke, in understanding those experiences, the stable house that I lived in, both parents having a post-secondary education because they were encouraged and supported to do so. And a result I was. So at the time, 10 years ago, I didn't have the depth of knowledge that I have today and my ability to now connect my personal circumstance to the circumstances of both non-Indigenous and Indigenous Canadians, I'm driven to participate in building a future for Canada where one group's prosperity doesn't come at the expense of another's rights or well-being. And so RISE was founded in 2013 with that in mind. I was completing my graduate studies. I was looking at a project with Kingdom Morgan Canada, the Trans Mountain Expansion Project. And today RISE has grown to be a national management consulting firm advancing reconciliation in Canada. And I'm, I'm so honored to have been able to work with you in the past, Jeff, to work with other clients at results and, and to share this space with you today. Annie, you mentioned, you mentioned education, and I'm really encouraged by the response we even had just for today's conversation. And it tells me that not only do people want to learn, but they want to start taking action and be part of the solution when it comes to reconciliation. So I hope by, by the end of this conversation, people are going to have a, a foundation of knowledge, no matter what level of understanding you're coming into this episode with, you're going to leave here with something that you didn't know before. And more importantly, we're going to equip you with some actions that you can take uh, to start moving in the direction of reconciliation. So Annie, uh, a question I have is, is, so why today? Why September 30th? Why of all the days is this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation? Well, and interesting you say that because the shirt that I'm wearing today, Jeff, it's actually a, a few years old and it's, it's, it's that the, the orange shirt movement and orange shirt day is a term that we've used actually since 2013. And it was a movement that was created to recognize the colonial legacy of residential schools and to commit to the ongoing process of reconciliation. And orange shirt day recalls the experience of residential school survivor Phyllis Webstad and, and you can find her book um, in, in bookstores or online. And she attended the St. Joseph's Mission Residential School in 1973, and her orange shirt was taken away from her. And so or September 30th was chosen by her because that was around the time of year when Indigenous children were removed from their families and forced into residential schools. And that to me is an emotional aspect just into itself. When I think about my own childhood going to school or getting fin ready. I mean, my son is four and, and he goes to preschool on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Today it's closed, which is a good thing, but it's an exciting time, right? It's, an it's a time of anticipation and new clothing and new crayons. Um, and that wasn't the case for Indigenous peoples. It wasn't a choice. And and, and in, in recognizing this, um, September 30th was chosen because it was around that time of year when Indigenous children were removed from their families and forced into residential schools. And so following this, 
um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, this is the this is the, the book of the calls to action, call to action 80, um, when published in 2015, it was a call to the federal government to establish a statutory holiday, a national day for truth and reconciliation to honor survivors, their families and their communities, and to ensure public commemoration of the history and legacy of residential schools. And I can't help but reflect on the first question you asked and sort of what am I seeing? What am I feeling? And I, I see so much of this and I see it today and, and I see it every day in my work. And so in, in June of 2021, Bill C-5 was passed and the statutory holiday was, was put into place and called action number 80 um, was made, was made, was made to be active. And so we see lots of organization. It's been really actually really interesting to watch the change where some organizations were saying they weren't going to recognize it as a stat and then they were others that aren't able to because you know I have clients that you know they're, they're doing turnaround work and so they're they're on site today but they're taking moments to pause they're taking intentional moments to listen and learn but I mean I, I think you know Jeff no doubt we have a long way to go in the process of truth and healing justice and reconciliation there remains a lack of understanding but the opportunity is there you have influence, Jeff. I have influence. We all, everyone who's listening, we have the opportunity to make change, to participate. And so I think really it's it's in this time that we have together or later in the day to take time, to take a moment to remember, remember why it is that we're amplifying this awareness. Talk to our friends, talk to our family, our clients, our children, and spend time, spend intentional time Annie, when because I, I think that I, I see that quite a bit that that's that's the advice is to take the time to think, reflect, to learn, to listen. Are there some places that you want to maybe even just direct people to right now where they can go to find good materials and good resources to be able to have meaningful conversations? I think the conversations I have with a, with with a lot of non-Indigenous people is that they want to have these conversations, but they don't necessarily know where to go to find the right resources or how to even start the conversation. So it, it, you kind of mentioned that. So it seems like a good segue to maybe share a little bit of insight on what you have to say about that. Yeah, the, you know, it's interesting. The work that our team does at RISE is, is really around weaving reconciliation. And I use this dream catcher analogy in weaving it into everything that we do. And so with that in mind, an opportunity to act exists everywhere. And so, although I don't watch a lot of television, um, I look forward to watching television in my future, the Aboriginal People's Television Network. So, so this evening, as you sit down and, and chill out, um, you know, try turning that on, try taking a look at the episodes. What are indigenous producers um, what are they, what are they pr producing for us to watch? How can we learn through that platform? Podcasts, music, you know, we were listening to Fawn Wood, um, and her music before we got on, got into our conversation, media sources, like the, you know, the newspapers, um, indigenous writers, books, you know, Jeff, I know that you've read, um, this book, 21 Things You Didn't Know About the Indian Act. It's a fantastic, fairly straightforward read by, by Bob Joseph. Um, in your backyard, the, the U of A has a massive online open course. It's called a, a MOOC. And I'm actually doing it for a second time right now with the girls that I sit um, in circle with in the Young Women of Energy Indigenous Relations Committee. We call it MOOC Club instead of Book Club. 
it's fantastic. It's it's an online an online course. Um, it, it's free. You, I mean, you can you can pay. I think it's maybe a nominal fee, maybe fifty dollars if you'd like the certificate. But the U of A Indigenous Canada course is is hands down a fantastic resource. Probably the best resource that I've come across. There's a lot of short courses online that sort of thing. But it's it's really just, I think the intentional act is actually in the moment. If you're about to listen to some music or you're about to read the news, just, just stop for a second and think, is there something by an Indigenous artist, author, something like that, Jeff, I think is a good first step. Great advice. We talked a little bit about the history of September 30th and Orange Shirt Day. And I wonder also a little bit of history about so the TRC report being uh, uh, being completed in 2015. What are some of the historical pieces centered around reconciliation that you think are important for people to gain a, a better understanding of? It's complicated. I, yeah, we don't I have enough time, I, Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. And, and I guess I, I know when I, and I think the the reason I asked the question is I hope that we we can give people just some tidbits, uh, they're going to pique curiosity and lead them in, in, a, in a really productive direction so that they can continue the exploration on their own. So if there are some highlights or some things that you, uh, that you, that you do want to perhaps just reference, uh, that, that might be a good use of, of this time. Yeah, absolutely. The, and I mean, it's, it's complex, but I think a starting point is the acceptance that you know, until we become aware of and learn and understand the history, it's tough to understand, to comprehend the complexity of it. And so, you know, and maybe starting with Indigenous rights. And so we know that rights exist within the Constitution and rights are held by Indigenous peoples of Canada, First Nation, Métis and Inuit people. And they've always been here. They've been here since well before Canada became a country, but but for, for many people and, and the government included, they've chosen to ignore them or or actively try to extinguish them. And we've we've seen this in in quotes. Duncan Campbell Scott in 1910 had said that they'd like to find a solution for the Indian problem. And so if we back up to you know, what's called the, the doctrine of discovery. This was really in the late 1400s. Pope Alexander VI was issuing papal bulls. So, so he was serving between 1492 and 1503. And, and in this time, it, really, they were going out to conquer the new world. And they were looking um, you know, this process of, of conquest, of colonization. And the term terra nullis is one that you might Jeff, know, Jeff. It's, it's, it's really um, a term that was developed in the 1500s. And it means that, that they were looking for land that was legally deemed to be unoccupied or uninhabited. But of course, for Turtle Island or what we call Canada today, that wasn't the case. Millions of Indigenous peoples were living here prior to the arrival of Europeans. And so the doctrine of discovery, this concept that gave title to the lands found or claimed, it was really this process where, where Europeans were coming to Turtle Island and because indigenous peoples were not Christian, they were not considered human. And therefore this enabled the disposition of lands starting in the late 1500s. And so 
as Europeans started to come and as the land started to be settled, we started to see um, historic treaties and then early treaties. You mentioned Treaty 6. I'm in unceded territory here living in Fernie, British Columbia. But the treaties were being formed, and that was really an important, an important part of, I guess, our history and our process, an important sort of document was the 1763 Royal Proclamation, which was issued by King George III, which was really prohibiting settlers from encroaching on First Nation territories through these wars, there was disease, it was just chaos. And so the Royal Proclamation provided that treaties were to be negotiated and signed prior to lands being taken up by settlers. And so we carry on in the process and, and there's lots of information about treaties and something listeners can do is you can spend some time on the Google later learning about the aspects of the treaty if you're living in treaty territory. But there's over 630 First Nation communities in Canada and 3,100 reserves and reserve land was, was part of, it was a formula that was part of the treaty making process. Another important component was the Constitution Act in 1867. And following that, the first residential schools um, opened in 1870 and the Indian Act, the, the book that we were, that we were chatting about it really mandated this, um, this process with residential schools. And really that it was sort of in the Indian Act that all Indian matters were starting to be governed. And so under the act, um, it, was, um, it was mandated that all indigenous children would attend residential school. And this sort of gets us up to um, why the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was formed in 08 and the completion in, in 2015. But I mean, it's just, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And, and I get emotional when I, when I think about what was happening at that time, because, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald in, this, in his address to the House of Commons, he said, you know, when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents and he called them savages and he is surrounded by savages and he may learn to read and write, but his habits and training and mode and thought are that of an Indian. And so he said, it has been strongly pressed on myself as the head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn. And so, so, so Jeff, parents who didn't send their children voluntarily had their children forcibly removed by Indian agents of the government. And this is in excess of 250,000 children. Um, a friend of mine, Holly Forte, has a really beautiful video on YouTube called A Mother's Voice. And it's the story of her mother and her sisters being taken from their community in the Wood Buffalo area. And so there were approximately 130 schools in Canada and the last in Saskatchewan just closed in 1996. And so when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission started, it, it was sort of started in 2008. It was really with that in mind. The, the, it was it was sort of on the heels of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, which was the largest class action lawsuit in Canadian history. And so the commission was formed as a means of reckoning with the devastating legacy, the forced assimilation, the abuse left by the residential school system. And so through the years that the commission was was going on, led by the, the Honorable Marie Sinclair, they heard from thousands of residential school survivors. And, and, and once they completed these interviews, what came out of it was a final report and the, the 94 calls to action. 
And so as they as they documented information and in, as they as they heard the stories, really Indigenous peoples and, and, and sort of the calls to action came to be the call of response, the opportunity to, to participate. And and I, I think you know the history and, and reconciliation, Jeff, that the word, it really for me it means relationship. It means the opportunity for us to move forward and acknowledge the interests, the needs of each other. It's about truth and it's about justice. And we have that opportunity to ask ourselves, you know, what kind of relationships do we want? And for Canada to prosper, we must establish a new relationship. And we all have a role to play, Jeff. And so, although that's not a lot, that felt like a lot, you can see how the history knits together how we are where we are today, that today is the 30th. It is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Call to Action 80 was part of the calls that came through that process. Annie, I just want to take a, a second to acknowledge the, just the level of, of vulnerability that you're bringing to this conversation. And I, I think it goes without saying that anybody that's listening right now um, is reaching out to you and sort of putting their arms around you because I think we can all we can all feel that uh, in a way that we'll never understand, but we can certainly start to gain a way deeper under uh, understanding and appreciation for how uh, how um, just the atrocities uh, the atrocities and, and just how atrocious uh, this was. And as you start to tell some of these stories, I mean, even even having the the orange shirt taken from you, we can all identify with what it was like to be a child going to school, especially in our younger formative years and how your back to school outfit was the thing. And, and then you start to talk about just the unimaginable of being ripped out of the arms of your parents and not only leaving your parents, but your parents having to see their children. And it's, it's, um, it's hard to imagine that this actually happened in Canada. It really is. And you corrected me when we had a conversation a few weeks ago, uh, you corrected me because I was asking questions about the history and the sort of how we got here. You were very clear to, to re remind me that this is actually not history. This is current. This is ongoing. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And I think as when there was 215 bodies found in Kamloops, it really there was really this awakening, this, this awareness. Um, and for, for, I guess, friends of mine, colleagues, um, you know, women that I sit in circle with, what became very difficult at that time, Jeff, is that, and because, you know, for a lot of us that, that have a history that have had, that are closer to it, that have maybe had family members that have gone through residential school systems, or the residential system is that there was this focus that the language was on was was past tense, you know, this dark history. But but the reality is that the history and the system and the act has has led to and created injustice, the intergenerational trauma that exists, the ongoing barriers that are in place for indigenous peoples, they exist today. And, and, and that's, that's, that's why I corrected you, Jeff. That's why it's important to say that it's a dark history and it's an ongoing issue. It's a challenge, it's an opportunity to respond to. And so the more we understand what those barriers are, the more we can do 
to participate and to support the rising presence of indigenous peoples or to support equality, to support justice. Annie, I'd like to talk a little bit about terminology. And another thing that you spoke to me a little bit about in our, in our uh, lead up to this was why the term BIPOC doesn't work. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, <laughs> it's not that it doesn't, doesn't necessarily work. It's just, it's not a term that I use, Jeff. Um, and Black, Indigenous and people of color, you know, all of these individuals, you know, face systemic racism. And I have a good friend, Erin Davis, who has taught me a lot about this. And as an Indigenous woman, I recognize and I understand Indigenous rights and title and, and the reality of nation to nation. You know, I, I talked about treaty and treaty making. Um, I didn't get into sort of the background on the nation to nation relationship, but it's important to be aware of and to note that, that our nations existed before Canada as a nation was formed and rights are unique. They're unique in Canada. And so indigenous peoples, as we exercise rights that are constitutionally protected, that would be what I would say would, would be a difference in sort of why I wouldn't use the, the BIPOC acronym to sort of clump everyone sort of together into the same group. What about terminology, Annie? Like, how do we know uh, and how does a person know when to maybe refer to First Nation versus Indigenous versus Inuit, uh, Métis, Aboriginal? And uh, we, we had some conversation about that and I wouldn't mind uh, maybe a little more elaboration because I, I think a lot of people have uh, similar, uh, similar questions. Yeah, it's a good question. I get it a lot. And, and I learn actually all the time. I was... Um, speaking at an event with my good friend Alicia Dubois a few weeks ago and she actually she took this one she answered it and I was like oh that's that's neat I like your perspective and and we learn all the time but I mean a, a good sort of rule to start with is always just ask right ask somebody you're with um you know politely kindly you know um how they like to identify um and ask about sort of the history of the community again that is an act of reconciliation but the term indigenous peoples and, and it a little bit goes back to the, the last question that you asked is that the world council of indigenous peoples, so, so sort of globally defines indigenous peoples as descendants of the early populations living in the area and so although we see the term aboriginal used a lot and it's used in our constitution um, it's used in in a lot of languages and we're sort of starting to see the switch and the reason for that is that um you know the root meaning of, of ab means away from or not original um, in, in Latin. And so that's not well received by indigenous peoples. And so, so this shift is, is happening and we start to hear indigenous used more. And so indigenous peoples of Canada in the constitution recognized as First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people. And so for First Nation, often the term Indian has been used in the past and it's no longer used. It, it can be seen as a, as a derogatory word, Jeff. I do have friends. I have a, a good friend on Vancouver Island um, and, and she refers to herself as an Indian. She asks that she is called an Indian. She has an Indian status card that she pulls out of her wallet. And so she's good with it and that's her choice. Um, but we use First Nation um, more often. And for, for myself as a Métis woman, 
one, it's a, it's a person who self-identifies as Métis is, is distinct from sort of the two other um, um, Indigenous peoples in Canada. And we really, um, we're, we're, we're registered through nations, um, but not in the same sort of registry process of, of people who are status or non-status Indian. And we're the de descendants of, of the union between First Nations women and European men during the fur trade. And then the third group is Inuit. And um, you may have heard the word Eskimo. It's, it's a term also that um, is now um, seen as a derogatory term um, in most cases. But again, if, if somebody, if that's a term that they use that they like, that's okay. Um, but Inuit is, um, is, the, is the term that's most widely used for an individual person and Inuk. So I have a good friend, Andrea, and Inuk. And so that's a, that's a good word to use. Yeah, I, I read, a, uh, I read a, a really great book about a year and a half ago, and it, it was basically uh, two college women that traveled to every U.S. state and talking about how racism uh, impacted people in, in those regions. And one of the first places they went to was Alaska. And when they, when they talked to, uh, to elders in Alaska, they talked about the origin of the word Eskimo sort of being a derogatory term that Russian settlers had sort of bestowed upon them. And, and uh, when I, as soon as I read that, I thought, wow, geez, that's enough for me to, to know that Eskimo is a, a derogatory term we should no longer use. And I know we've changed the name of the, the local football club to the Elks. And I think that's a great choice, a great decision. And uh, it's about time that they did that. Uh, what about land acknowledgements, Annie? Why are land acknowledgements so important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question, and and I'm I'm grateful that you started with a land acknowledgement today. Is 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 you know there's there's three big things in a land acknowledgement. Jeff is is one the opportunity to understand how has the land been used, who has or is using the land, and just that awareness, acknowledging, um, you know, the beauty and the uniqueness of of where you are. Second, when I share a land acknowledgement, I usually share something about the why. So so why is it important for me? What's the connection for me? And, and, I, and when I opened today with sort of my story and really starting to understand my own lineage and my heritage, our stories connect us. So what's unique for you in this land? And although often, you know, especially in this virtual world, we're not leaving our territory, you might sort of say the same land acknowledgement. I always challenge myself, you know, I'm a newcomer to the Tanaha to the homelands of the Tanaha people here in Fernie. And so I'm learning about how the land was used. I was, I was being taught the other day about the myth of the ghost rider and what does that mean? Who is that? What happened? And then the third piece of the land acknowledgement is the what's next, the why. Can you turn it into an action? Can you state something that's actionable as you share a land acknowledgement? And part of that, and I love this part, is that being an act of reconciliation, those that are listening to you, they're learning in that moment. So when we think about the importance of listening and learning and our ability to build our knowledge, you know, this it's so complex. And so what little things can we do is, Jeff, every time you share one, depending on where you are, it's then an opportunity for you to share a bit of knowledge with everyone that you're speaking to. Yeah, uh, Annie, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, uh, Commission, uh, the calls to action there, you know, we don't have time to go through in, in great detail what, what the calls to action are, but I am interested in your perspective as to whether or not 
you think enough progress is being made. And you know, sometimes progress can seem slow at the start and then you reach a tipping point and progress seems fast. But I'm really interested in your perspective in terms of how much uh, progress we're making. Is it fast enough? Should they be doing more? Progress is, well, I guess it, it's, it's a measure that we all have individually, Jeff, and it's really sort of through, through the lens of, of the person experiencing it, um, who's viewing it, who's assessing it. For me, substantial progress has been made. I am in awe, even in my own time since RISE was created in, in 2013, the change that has happened. And, and, and we were, and when, in 2013, I was working for, for quite a few years with the Trans Mountain Expansion Project. And we were being regulated by the National Energy Board at that time. The change to the Canadian Energy Regulator, the creation of the Indigenous Advisory Committee, the contractor standards that we were creating at that time in educating the major pipeline construction companies that would be working on the project, the subs that would be supporting those, those major primes. It's phenomenal to see the difference and those indicators, those, those measures of impact. Reconciliation, I might get emotional again. It's, it's not an end point, Jeff. It's this, it's this, it's this ability to look around. And, and for me, I, I have a friend who just, who just finished in a, in a very senior role in a, in a company that has exploded under his leadership. And I was so proud of him because in his closing, in his letter, in his closing letter, he talked about that impact, the jobs created, the change to wellness, health and wellness of the people of that community. And that's reconciliation, that's progress. When we can look around Jeff and see equality in the indigenous peoples at various levels through our organizations, if we can look on our board and see and listen to an indigenous voice, this is progress. And so I am so grateful for everyone who's listening and for the work that's happening today. And could we do being more? Yeah, I, I'm sure we could, but am I so proud? of the work that's being done, that we have our orange shirts, that there's, I'm not sure how many people are listening. Absolutely. I mean, social media, have you seen LinkedIn over the last month? It's amazing. The resources that are being shared, the stories that are being shared, the vulnerability. Um, I'm, does that answer your question? Yeah, well, it, it, it does. It does. Uh, and, and like, all of the questions I'm asking you, I mean, we could probably dedicate an, an entire uh, an entire day and, and more to, to each of these topics. Annie, I would love for you to talk a bit more about Rise, your company, and, and the basis and the purpose that you founded it on. And I know that you have put a lot of effort along with your team to, to create a bit of a framework to actually help people and help organizations create meaningful uh, alliances and partnerships with Indigenous communities. And I wonder if you could, you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, and it's, it's been a journey and it's, it's neat to, you know, get to know you, Jeff, a little bit. And just, you know, as an entrepreneur, it can be really lonely sometimes as you're trying to, you know, figure it out. It's like, I didn't, I did an MBA, but I'd never been an entrepreneur. I hadn't started my own business. I hadn't sort of created sort of structure and framework. And I'm so grateful for all the mentors that have been teaching me as I listen and learn. And, um, 
the the framework that we use at Rise, or I guess sort of s- some of the the pieces that are important to us, is is really beginning with the end in mind, and and knowing that it's a journey, and that it's 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 going to take time, and that we work together to do that. And at Rise, we we focus on the creation of shared value in all aspects of a business, so in the various business units. And so we work with organizations to understand the values they hold, what makes them unique. And then how to weave those values into a reconciliation pathway and indigenous inclusion strategy, and then a work plan, which are the tactical pieces. And so a few minutes ago, when I mentioned my friend, what ends up becoming sort of the outcome or the output are actually metrics and the opportunity to say we move the needle through the creation of an Indigenous mentorship program. We now have more Indigenous employees through the creation of a a supply chain diversification program. We now are making purchases from Indigenous businesses and that supports the rising presence of Indigenous peoples and that supports the vision of a future where one's rights and well-being do not come at the expense of someone else's. And so as we create those sort of frameworks, we really focus on listen, learn, reflect, act. And so there's this emphasis, you know, half of the equation is on listening and learning. The more that we can, I'm talking a lot, the more that we can be quiet, (laughs) you know, creator gave us two ears and one mouth and listen and then reflect on what we've heard, the more we can then act and, and, and really focus on making decisions and moving forward in partnership. And Rise works with the tenant, nothing about you without you, or for, for me as an Indigenous woman, nothing about me without me, which is really the antithesis of the Indian Act, the antithesis of assimilation as we build together. Don't assume, ask. Annie, you're the guest of honor, so you shouldn't be doing any listening on this uh, on this call at all. Nobody shows up to listen to me, that's for sure. Uh, could you share some examples, I wonder? Like, So when you talk about, so there's sort of four key pieces to your framework around listening, learning, reflecting, and acting. How, how does listening and learning show up? Like what, what, would be a, what would be an action or an activity that a company could take to actually demonstrate those two points? Dictatorship. <laughs> <laughs> so and I laugh I laugh because you know it's, it's so true and, and you know it, it, it works but it's really so you know we, we, we can think about sort of a knowledge assessment Jeff and we can take results as a great example is that we start by understanding what is the collective knowledge that we have at results so we can sit in circle and we can talk about that we can assess what, how much knowledge do we have? What do we individually have? What do we want to have? What should we have? And then we create a purposeful knowledge building program. And a lot of the resources that I shared a little while ago are, are inputs to that. And we work through that. And, and that's where dictatorship comes in because you know you can track knowledge building. You can change your performance impact process or performance management process, depending on the term you use, to be reflective of kind of going through the learning program. Um, and then through that, it's the application of learning and the ability for somebody to sit. And that's sort of this, this um, dream catcher analogy that we use at Rise, where reconciliation is woven into all aspects. So for, for members of your team who work in communications, okay, now let's create 
you know, or, or let's maybe you have a comms plan already, Jeff, but let's weave reconciliation into our comms plan. Let's purposely create reconciliation moments, Indigenous inclusion stories. Let's share them within our own team internally so we continue to build our knowledge and externally with our clients. And it's the same for procurement or for somebody in employment and training. It's the application of your knowledge into the creation of a, of a process or a system and then the output with KPIs, metrics, and, and really sort of changing if you have a balanced scorecard, if you have sort of eight metrics that you review at your leadership meeting that you start to see inclusion and reconciliation show up in that. Annie, what are some major differences between, um, and this, if this is not the right term, please correct me, but let's say colonial business customs and norms versus indigenous ones. And because uh, I, I think all too often, uh, you know, it's, it's one person's way or another and, and we don't take time to understand that. But what are some common mistakes that we make when we're trying to create meaningful partnerships within indigenous communities and First Nations? I think regardless, you know, and I've got, I've got a colleague at Rise, Jillian, who's been really helpful as I'm learning about this area is that colonial is it's everywhere and we don't know it we you don't feel it because it's the system we live in the 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 way we operate um you know colonial ways of being uh clocks agendas very scripted you know whereas i i think when you take a moment um and just pause it, it can be quite shocking that everything. Is, is that colonial? Or where did I learn that? Or why am I acting that way? And when you're building a relationship, which which will potentially move into a, a partnership, a form of a partnership, you have the opportunity to just take pause and ask the other participant, the other party, is this something that works for you? And is this a way that we can, we can be? And, and when I'm working with organizations, we talk about protocol and communication protocol and asking and, and sharing tobacco as knowledge is exchanged. You know, time is a great example. Um, it's not a natural protocol traditionally. Indigenous peoples didn't wear washes. <laughs> you know, the sun set, the seasons changed. Um, you know, I've been taught by my elders that to wait for someone, that's a sign of respect because we don't know what that other individual has been doing or, or, or why they're late. And this myth that exists around Indian time, I mean, it's not because an indigenous person doesn't care or that they're blowing you off if you're a settler, it's they probably have had another priority that's not your priority. And so we have the opportunity to just, just take stock for a minute and just, just reflect. So, so what's that person? Um, up to today? What did they face this morning as, as they woke up or when they went to bed last night? You know, did they go through their, their routine? You know, Jeff, I know you wear an eye mask and have earplugs, but not all of us do, right? <laughs> well, you can't, you can't tell, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's, those are some interesting insights. And so the thing that really grabbed me there was that waiting for someone is a show of respect. And and I think what it highlights is you can't, you can't fake a meaningful partnership. So you actually have to genuinely and authentically care about understanding somebody else's perspective and a day in the life of their world. And I, I know a lot of people that have created some 
tremendous uh, partnerships with First Nations communities. And I think that that's what they do. They're great people, first and foremost. So they genuinely care about creating win-win relationships with, with all stakeholders. And you probably find that that's the same in the work that you're doing. Or that's what I aim to achieve in the work that I'm doing, Jeff, because it's, and it's not anyone's fault. You know, it's, it's not like it's, it's sort of planned, you know, organizations will come to rise and they'll, you know, I really need a partnership or I need a joint venture with, you know, XYZ nations. Like, oh, do they know that you need that? <laughs> Have you talked to them about that? What are their needs? What are their interests? What are they looking for as they build own source revenue, as they move towards sovereignty, as they as they support the rising presence of their people. And so that's that's where there's room for a conversation and to move away from assumptions and to ask lots of questions. Annie, what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles to progress right now? Resources in community, the big one, Jeff. Um, I think as, as organizations are tooling up in this space, we, we know there's there's a lot of practitioners working in this area, which is fantastic. You know, organize, you know, I, I see the sign behind you. I'm friends with SharePoint, which is great. They're doing amazing work. Um, and we have individuals working and, and attempting to work in community, sort of from the corporate side, say, we, we, we are, we're good intention. We'd like to understand. We'd like to respo- respond. But it's difficult when a community doesn't have the resources to respond, to sort of come back to the circle, to sit in circle, to share ideas. And so what we can do is we can work as, as corporate Canada, or, you know, that um, I, I mentioned my friend Alicia at the um, Alberta Indigen- Indigenous Opportunities Corp, you know, this organization has been created to support um, a, a gap to sort of fill a gap and provide loan guarantees and to provide access to capital, making financing more available because there isn't somebody in community, in some communities, there, there, are, there absolutely are, but, but not in every community that has the ability to participate in a project or to build a relationship because there isn't somebody in that role. And so, so that's tricky. And that can be really deflating when you know, as corporate Canada, we're responding to the call, we've got a strategy, we're reaching out, we're looking for a response. And, you know, when it's radio silence on the other end, then we have to sort of look at other options to participate in, in resource building programs for Indigenous peoples. You mentioned before, Annie, this work will never be done. And I think everybody agrees with that. The reconciliation will be the work of everyone's life, lifetimes for generations to come. But is there a point where we'll be able to look around and acknowledge that we've actually crossed the threshold where meaningful progress has been achieved? Like, and, and, and if we can reach that kind of a threshold, like what, what would we be seeing? What would the world look like if, if we could say, okay, legitimate, sustainable progress has been finally achieved? Yeah, I mean, we, we chatted a little bit about this with um, like has been achieved, but it's, it's, it's maybe never an end state, but instead this constant act of co-creation. And I had the good fortune of, of spending some time with Dr. Mike Degagne, the CEO of Inspire, 
And Mike said to me that, you know, Annie, what I see through reconciliation with reconciliation is a movement from reconciliation to co-creation. And it was interesting because at Rise, I've been using this, this lingo around creation of shared value and really from, from my graduate studies work around Michael Porter's model, the creation of shared value and the difference with the CSV versus corporate social responsibility or CSR. But it, it's really, you know, looking around and, and, and thinking about your organization and, and looking at, you know, your organization in the, in the dream catcher lens and saying, I see Indigenous businesses in our supply chain. I, I, I see and I'm working with Indigenous peoples in all levels of the organization. We're making community investments in all aspects of our work and Indigenous communities are, are part of that. I see it in our leadership team with our commitment to building an inclusive culture. I can count on my finger the number of experiences that I've had um, as related to building my own knowledge about Indigenous peoples and cultures, the history. Um, those, are the, those are the items, Jeff, I think that as we, as we move and as we sort of you know, take stock of what we're up to and, and the experiences that we've had or the organizations that we're part of, those are the indicators of progress. Those are those are the movements. Those are the acts of reconciliation. Annie, is there anything that you were hoping we were going to have a chance to talk about today that we haven't? Or is there is there something that you'd really like to impart on the listeners uh, that you haven't had a chance to say yet? But I want to give you that opportunity right now before we uh, before we move into three and thirty. Well, it's live, Jeff. It's a podcast. I'd love to turn the tables for a moment. I'm really keen to know for you, Jeff, you know, you and I have known each other for just over a year. Share a little bit about your own story. What does this look like for you? Yeah, well, that is a question I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for. And, but here's, here's, here's how it feels for me is it feels very shameful. So when this has been a, such an honor to sit and have this conversation with you today, Annie. I feel very shameful, though, because I had no idea that this is the history with which Canada was founded on. And I didn't know much about residential schools until a couple of years ago. And so I, I think uh, coming to terms with this country that you love and filled with people that you love and so grateful for the life that you have. And then you look around and the older you get, the more you realize that so many people uh, have never had a chance to experience what that actually feels like. And uh, so, so that's a motivator and a driver for me. And, but I, but I think if you're, uh, if you're non-Indigenous, a good mindset will be that you feel like you have never done enough or you could never do enough to make this right and repay it. Cause I think that serves as a good tension point to, to keep that motivation strong. My biggest fear is what happens after a conversation like this. And so this is awesome. We did this, we planned this, we've done some reading, some books, you know, you look at the, the, the TRC report and you read that, but we, we, we have to find ways to keep this momentum going. We have to create actions. And I think uh, we don't have to be martyrs personally, but I think that we have to lift where we stand. So we have to be an influencer with the folks that we're closest with. And so I know our company is very committed to this and uh, we're going to keep making sure that we're pushing things forward and 
we're committing to actions that we're going to take towards reconciliation. And I hope through that, it'll make us easier to make it easier for us to have conversations with our clients and our clients will start to do the same. We learn from our clients as well. So they do that for us. And I, and I think if we can all just commit to, to ongoing action and learning that I, I believe that we can reach a tipping point of meaningful progress, but um, yeah, Annie, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's hard to accept and acknowledge that that this is the state of our country and this is how so many people have experienced it. Well, you're lucky that um, we have a good friendship and I'll help to hold you accountable, Jeff. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really keen to support the team and, and to, to make those goals, to set those objectives. You know, what does the ideal future state look like at results so that in a year, in five years, we can look back and we can see progress and feel really good about it. Thank you for that. So Annie, that brings us to our, our three and 30. We like to end every Unleashed episode with some calls to action. So that's a really great segue. Annie, what's, uh, what's the three and 30 this week? Yes, three and 30 this week. It was hard to sort of narrow down my list of 700. But, you know, earlier I was mentioning, um, you know, Aboriginal People's Television Network, the opportunity to diversify your media, you know, just take stock of how you spend your time. What are you reading? Who are the authors? What are you watching? What are you listening to? There's some great Indigenous podcasts out there. There's great shows on television, Netflix, YouTube. Um, there's great music. We were listening to Fawn Wood. Her music is beautiful. A second, read the calls to action. Um, you know, get in touch with me if, if you would like. I, I have this great little sort of guide. If, if you're keen to better understand how you can read them and then apply them to your own life. Um, and shop Indigenous. I love this one. I was at the, um, the annual Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business event last week. And Jen Harper, if you don't know Jen Harper, Google her, but she owns Cheekbone um, Beauty and I'm wearing her lipstick. She has fantastic products. And I mean, there's so many great Indigenous um, suppliers, you know, vendors, products out there. But this is really great. You know, my, my earrings are made by an Indigenous designer, a gift from my friend. Um, but specific to Cheekbone, I mean, she's just launched in Sephora. I mean, this is incredible, this um, sort of the growth of her company. And I think finally, the bonus, um, be accountable. Be accountable for your learning, for your actions, and show up, you know, today and every day and respond to the call to reconciliation. Annie, thank you for joining us today. This has been such an insightful, uplifting, raw, genuine conversation. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. And I know, I know everybody listening feels the same way. Uh, now, we are going to make a $500 donation to the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. And I encourage anybody tuning in right now to do the same. Uh, we will uh, we'll make the link uh, um, to make those donations on our social platforms easy to find and we'll, we'll make sure we put them in the, in, in the show notes. Uh, and, and Andy, we'll make sure it's, it's easy for people to find you as well. You're such a wonderful resource. Uh, we've worked with you. A lot of our clients work with you and uh, anyone that is not should be. So Annie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. Hand to heart for the work that you're doing and for making space for this conversation today. Have a great day. Uh, absolutely. And, and if I can leave everyone with this, if you're a settler uh, like I am, it isn't easy to admit that your home, your beloved country may not, but may not be what you thought or wished it was. 
it's not easy to confront the fact that much of what we have based our identities on are falsehoods about Canada being home of the strong and free. I think what we've learned is that Canada has been the land of the free, but only for some. Uh, but here's the thing. It's okay to hold opposing emotions at the same time. We can hold space for acknowledging the atrocities done toward Indigenous peoples and feel the guilt and shame that comes with that. And we can also be proud of our country and the many things that we love about it and what it stands for. I have lots of questions and I have a lot of learning to do, but there's something I do know. When we near the end of our days, we're more likely to regret the things we didn't do, the risks that we didn't take, and the courageous help that we didn't offer. So let the pride in our country fuel that courage that's gonna be necessary to move us towards reconciliation. And if we can do that, I know we can make this right. Thank you everybody for joining us today. And as a way to stay connected, uh, we're gonna make sure you know how to find Annie. Uh, and then if you have questions for us, any comments about the show, the episode, future, past, current, you can find us at info at unleashedresults.com. We'll answer those emails quickly. Uh, follow us on Twitter at unleashedresults.com. And then of course, this episode and all of prior seasons and future season uh, uh, episodes are available on our website at unleashedresults.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you saw, don't forget to share episode links with your friends and colleagues. And if you're ready to take the next step and you're part of a leadership team that you just know has untapped potential, don't wait another moment. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.